Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with a six-time All-Star, World Series champ, and White Sox legend, Paul Canerco. Bases loaded, two out with Canerco on. And he rips one into left. Canerco, grand slam. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a six-time All-Star. He won a World Series in 2005, and his number 14 was retired by the White Sox in 2015. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Canerco. Paulie, thanks for coming on the uh, program. Oh, happy to be here. I appreciate you having me on. All right. I've had one other baseball captain on the show, Barry Larkin. We were all teammates at one point. I used to tease him all the time. I I used to tease him all the time. I said, Lark, there's no captains in baseball. But I've got to admit, deep down, when the organization gives you that kind of uh, title, even though it's not very, you know, there's not too many in baseball, it's actually kind of a cool thing, even though it's kind of funny because we think of captains, soccer, hockey, not baseball. What about right. when you got it? You were the captain from 06 to 14. Yeah, I mean, I think it was um, – I think what it stemmed from was – so Ozzie Guillen obviously was the manager back then. And during the 80s when he was with the White Sox, and yeah, interesting enough, Tony LaRusso was the manager then. Um, he, uh, they, they had a captain thing uh, with that team, I think to the point that I think even somebody wore the C on their jersey, kind of like the real thing. And so it was something that like his group of players and like that core group of guys that was there in the 80s did. And so and then I think it went away somewhere like in the late 80s and then into the 90s and all that. It was something through the 90s. It was something that wasn't there, wasn't there when I first got to the White Sox in 99 and, and all that. So it was something that it, I was obviously a free agent after the 2005 year. And I think it was kind of one of those things. I think he even said, like, if he comes back, like, we're going to start this up again. And so, yeah, it was flattering. And it was, um, you know, it was definitely, it, it was a flattering thing. First, because I'm like such a huge hockey fan. I played hockey growing up and it was like really my first love. So I was kind of like, all right, well, I have something that's connected to hockey in a way. Um, but the reality is, um, through the time I was doing it, you know, people would say like, well, what does that mean? Like, what do you get out of it? I say, well, what I get out of it is just a constant, uh, you know, busting of my chops by my teammates on everything that happens. You know, something happens. They're like, talk to the captain. That's his problem. You know, that's why he's got to see, you know, so it wound up being, you know, one of those things Go we're out to dinner, like the tab comes, you know, it's like, oh, captain's got it. You know, it's always like I'm the captain. So, um, you know, that was definitely, uh, you know, probably like an ongoing joke throughout that. Um, but obviously looking back on it now, I, you know, as an older person and kind of looking back on it, I, you know, I think I wish I would have done more with it, you know, in terms of like you know, leading and then like kind of, you know, I think as a player, as you know, there's always that little fear of like rocking the boat or like, you know, you don't want to it's a fine line between like, Hey, I'm going to be a leader and all that. But if you do that too much, you can almost become like an outcast amongst the team and I might've been played a little bit too safe too much of the time. I probably looking back would have been a little bit more verbal with it, I guess. 
Well, you, you talk about that that leader position, and it's um, you know I, I think it's a big misnomer in the game. You know, outside be oh he's a leader. Look at him. No, and and I'll just speak for myself. Uh, you can speak to some guys you've seen you know throughout your career, but the the great leaders to me weren't the ones that were pounding their chest telling everybody what to do, getting up on that soapbox, giving, you know, team meetings all the time. That wasn't it. For me, it was more, especially when I was a young player, was the guy that I just watched and everything he did it made me want to be like him. You know, it usually it, it, it comes with you've got to be a great player. You know, to, that's that's a kind of a prerequisite for that leader position. But it's not necessarily what they what they said. It's what they did. It's how they carried themselves. It's, you know, through good times, tough times. Uh, they always said that said, you know, they, they were there to say something when something need needed to be said, not just for, oh, I've got to say something. We're struggling. Those are the guys that I look to. Did you have a guy, uh, you know, we played together briefly when you were when you were just a kid. But then, you know, you went to the to the White Sox and, and went off to this great career in Chicago. Did you have a guy early in your career that you look to and go, I want to model myself after him? I like the way he plays the game. He does it right. He, he acts the way he should act on and off the field. And it's something I aspire to be. Did you have that guy in your life? Well, I'll exclude you just because we're on the podcast together. But uh, <laughs> I would say, you know, um, it, there's different guys at different moments, right? Like, I mean, I think back and I was lucky at times to be around um, some guys throughout the minor leagues before I even got to the big leagues. Like, I was around some managers and some coaches. I, I've always said one of the biggest things you know, when people ask, if somebody, anybody asked me about like, you know, how did, how did, how did you do it? Or how'd you get there? And I was like, listen, one of the biggest breaks I ever caught was being drafted by the Dodgers while it was still like the Dodgers, you know, like the original Dodger way. And the minor leagues with them was awesome. Like, you know, the coaching, I had big league people around me at all times kind of guiding me and keeping me honest and kind of, and getting, and getting into me when I wasn't, you know, doing the right things and, and all that. So that, that to me was number one. Um, I had some players on those teams. Um, example would be like in, in AAA. Obviously, sometimes you can be a really young guy. I was 21 years old. But back then, I don't know if it's still the case, probably not. But some of those AAA teams could be chock full of some guys that were like, you know, in their 30s that were older guys. And I had a couple guys on that team that were really good. Chip Hale was one of them. Uh, who's now, you know, he's managing the big leagues, played in the big leagues, now coach of, head coach of U of A. You know, he was a guy that at that moment in time was really good for me to kind of like get my work in the right way and kind of because, as you know, AAA can also be a really bad atmosphere for a young player. And then, you know, every step of the way, like when I got to L.A., Eric Karros was there, Todd Deal was there. Um, both of those guys kind of, you know, helped. And, and uh, there's a few other guys, um, you know, relievers and, and guys that, you know, might have been off not, not household names. Tom Prince, backup catcher. Um you know, and then as you move through, right, like I wasn't in Cincinnati long enough to really, um, you know, kind of soak any of it in. Um, and it was a very young team. So there was only a couple kind of guys that were might have been older yourself, Barry Larkin. And that might have been it. There was a couple other guys there, maybe Pete Harness, somebody like that. Um, and then with the White Sox, it was kind of like the beauty of that one was I had struggled in the first two places. And then when I got to the White Sox, there wasn't really that guy there, but what was cool about it was like everybody on the team was like 22 years old. So it was like, it was kind of like you could all figure it out together. It was almost like a college team. 
And, um, you know, and then along the way, without mentioning names, you know, some of the times the best ways to figure this stuff out is to be around guys of like, okay, that's not the way to do it. <laughs> and, right. Right. Like, you know, sometimes that sinks in and stays with you a lot longer than the good ones is like some guy who's just, you, you just remember, like, I don't want to be like that guy, you know? Yeah, and we, I'm sure we've, uh, they will go unnamed here on the Boone podcast, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I had a few, I, I, I have an inkling of, of the few you're referring to as well, but uh, yeah, great point, great point. Um, born in Providence, Rhode Island. Now, I'm a little confused. When did you move to Arizona? Because I know you went, you know, you, you went to high school, yeah. you got drafted out of Arizona, but uh, when did you move from Providence? Yeah, so I brief. I was I was born in Providence, lived in Rhode Island. My whole family and extended family lives lived and lives in in Rhode Island. Uh, when I was six years old, we actually moved to Connecticut, an hour away uh, from my dad's job, and so we were there for five years. And then that same job that my dad had um, transferred him out to Phoenix. Their like corporate offices moved, and so he's like, "We're moving." And so that was it, like 11 to 12. I was, it was between my fifth grade year and my sixth grade year. We moved out here. And um, again, I, like I said, I played hockey. At that moment in time, I was a better hockey player than I was baseball player. And I certainly loved it more. I probably loved them equally, but I was much more of a, of a hockey guy at that point. But then obviously moving to Arizona, um, there was actually pretty good hockey out here. And obviously now there's, there's great hockey out here. But at that moment, it was good, but like, you know, the baseball just overtook it, right. With the weather and everything out here. And you could just see it over the next year to two where it just kind of flip flopped and, you know, the rest is kind of issue, but I did continue, I did continue to play hockey until my sophomore year of high school. Um, where at that point I made the varsity baseball team and the varsity coach was like, listen, cause I was traveling all over the country and into Canada. I was with hockey. I was traveling all the time. And it was like, listen, once you make the varsity team, you can't be missing games. You can't be missing practices. Like, you have to be serious about that. And it was kind of, again, trending in the way that I think if I would have stuck with hockey and, like, said, listen, I don't care about baseball. I want to play hockey. I don't know. I think I would have probably played – I could have probably played college hockey, but that was probably the end of the road. And I don't know what level of college hockey, but I think just knowing guys I played with and against that went to those to that area, you know, that the college – Looking at what they were, I, I would fit in with that, but that would have been the end of the road, you know. Yeah, that's interesting it, it, because I grew up in Jersey. I, I moved from Jersey to California um, probably when I, I think I was 14 years old. But I grew up, you know, I didn't grow up playing organized hockey like you did. But, you know, when the, when the winter would come and the lakes would freeze, we'd be out there shoveling the lakes and we'd have hockey games every day after school. And I loved it. Never got into it, you know, seriously like you did. And then I remember dad, he got traded to the Angels from the Phillies. And he said, well, I'm I'm thinking about moving the family to California. At first, the first year he left us in New Jersey. I said, no way. You know, I'm a Jersey kid. I'm not moving to California. And as you mentioned, the weather, it's so conducive to what we ended up doing for a living. You in Arizona, myself in Southern Cal. Once I made that move, you know, and I was kicking and screaming because you know how it is when you grow up in a certain yeah. area. You don't want to you don't want to leave your buddies wherever you live is the greatest. South Jersey to me was the greatest place uh, that anyone could live. But that's the only thing I knew. I came to California and, uh, you know, I remember my dad telling me uh, this is going to be really good for you, Brett. 
baseball wise. And I didn't want to hear it. No, I'll just play, you know, when, when the weather's good enough, but it ended up obviously being the best thing for both of us uh, with the weather being so conducive to it. Um, so you get to high school, Chaparral high school in, in Arizona. Uh, yeah. You said you, was that, was that a big decision for you? You said your sophomore year, uh, giving up the hockey side of it when, when the baseball coach was kind of having that talk with you. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things, like, I knew probably a year before, like, it's coming, and, um, you know, it was like, it, it kind of just, as a kid, like, you know, I, everything was starting to get serious around me with the baseball in terms of, like, you know, even back then, I mean, now it's nuts more, you know, as you know, with, like, you have kids that are, you know, like, like you could probably look up publications of like the best third graders in the country. But <laughs> back then, you know, it started to get serious freshman, sophomore year of like, you know, it, it, you kind of started to see the writing on the wall of like, okay, this is something you can do beyond high school um, that there's scouts, there's colleges, it starts to kind of happen. So I knew it was like end all, but I didn't take away from the fact that of like, when you stop playing a sport that you've been playing your whole life for no other reason, like you're not, I didn't get hurt. I didn't dislike it. I didn't want to stop. It's like, you're stopping. You're, you're basically like kind of have to stop. And it's like, you're told to stop and you know, it's the right answer, but like, you know, you kind of just, it kind of hurts. And, and I don't know if you ever, I mean, listen, I played from that moment on, I think I snuck out a couple times, uh, about five years later, uh, I almost got hurt once. And so I, I kind of, sh I shelved it for a while, but like the second I retired in 2014, I retired in like, I think it was September 28th was my last game. I think I was on the ice within a week or two. Really? <laughs> so like for me, it was one of those like where I was like, I obviously I couldn't play it. I didn't play anymore. And I was old at that point or, you know, I was 38 years old, but like, it was like, I'm getting back out there. I don't have to worry about getting hurt now. I don't have to, you know, so, and really up until about a year ago, I was playing in like active game pickup games and I got a group of guys I played with and, and all that. So yeah, you, when, it, when I had to stop playing, it sucked. I, you know, I remember giving it one big cry and then, okay, you move on. But you right. know, it, it is kind of, it, it, you know, it kind of sucks that I had to, you know, kind of choose, uh, but it was, it, it, if it was a different sport, like if it was a sport like football or basketball that you could continue to play through the high school, I would have continued. But with hockey, um, anybody who knows that's in that world, you don't see many hockey players playing other sports because it's such a time consuming thing. And it's such a, you're traveling. It's just a different animal, the, the way the mechanisms are for youth hockey, you know? And the ice time and the weird hours. And, yeah, it's just, know, that, it's that's the whole problem. You know, baseball or football, there's always a field for us to go practice on. Ice hockey, it's like we got to get the arena, you, you know, and the other teams that, you know, everybody's vying for that ice time. There's just not enough arenas when there's, you know, the, the, the fields are plentiful. Um, you talked about early you know, I, and I, and I, you know, doing my due diligence on Pauly Canerco, uh, a guy by the name of Eddie Bain came up. Uh, he ends up, I believe, drafting. He was Fred Claire's assistant. You talked about the Dodgers following you at a really early age. It seems like your journey was a little different as you got to be a junior or senior college. It got serious. I know you signed a letter of intent with Arizona State, but, you know, guys that I, I remember when I got drafted and it wasn't an option for me. Uh, coming out of high school as a 29th round pick, you know, they said I was too small. And, you know, of course, you ask me, I was the greatest player in the history of the world. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't even an option for me with the money they were offered me in the 29th round or going to, to USC. For you, it was different because 
you, you get uh, you get drafted in 1994 by the Dodgers. You have that letter of intent to Arizona, but you're a first round pick. And when you're a first round yeah. pick, the money's a little different. It's a little bit of a different set of circumstances. Was that an easy choice for you then? Or did you really think oh, I might go to college? I might not. Or once you got drafted that high, uh, the decision was made for you. Yeah, I think once the actual black and white of it, of getting drafted at that point and, and that, you know, that, um, and that selection and that, you know, all that, I think at that point you, I knew, okay, I'm going to sign. Um, I, because it's not the money. Yes. But, it's about the, obviously the biggest thing is I think is the investment the team is making you with that pick, because as you know, um, teams don't want to see their first round picks not make it. Um, so they're going to give every chance so that it's a, the investment of that pick is just as much meaningful as the, the money that comes along with it, because you could give that same amount of money to someone in the 10th round or the 15th round. And yes, no one likes to lose money as a team, but teams, it's, you know, you start to learn as you go through it and, and you know, this now, like looking back on it, so many of the moves and so much of the thing is based off of the PR of it all, as opposed to like maybe the dollars and cents of it. So, um, but I'll tell you the biggest thing with all of that was my dad, like my dad never just the way he navigated that whole situation from the time I was probably, let's call it the beginning of my junior year where you have things that come out and say, listen, this kid's going to be a first round pick next year. Now you have two years to go to get to that. There is a lot that can go wrong. Um, in that time frame, in terms of not only what can go wrong on a field, but the mindset of a kid and where that kid can get to in his mind. And my dad, you know, looking back on it, you know, he did a great job of there was never a time that I thought I was signing a contract out of high school until the phone call came in that I got drafted in the first round. So that's hard to do to keep. I can only imagine nowadays how hard it is with all the clutter out there and all the information and all the, you know, now they got TV shows and they got all these different, you know, things that are promoting these young kids and how great they are. It's tough for a kid um, not to like say, why it's a failure and it's the end of the world if I don't get drafted in this round and sign. Um, But my dad did a very good job of kind of keeping me insulated from all that and saying, listen, you're going to college, you're going to college and that's the way it's going to be. You got a great setup. You got a great setup. If something changes with that, we'll deal with that then. But it was like that constant harping of like, that's the way it's going to be. And I just, he just made me believe that that was the right way to do. So I never, if it would have gone bad, as you know, there's many bad stories about that stuff on the draft day. I've seen guys, I had a guy a year ahead of me, you know, a guy that was a senior at Chaparral a year that I was a junior and his hopes were high and up about getting drafted and playing. And it didn't go right. It didn't go right for him. And he really never got back on track and never really got it going in, you know, call. He actually wound up not taking a full ride to a major division one school. Cause then he's like, I'm going to go to junior college and play a year. Then I'll get drafted. Like he started to chase and change the whole plan. And it just was never like, you know, a good thing. So, you know, my dad was the one that kind of kept it all reined in during that time. So looking, looking back on it. And uh, I mean, I had a kid the other day, Bernie, I was talking to him. He's going to be a senior this year. And he's like, I want to get drafted in the first three rounds and sign. And I won't even last for the most money that like that slot would take. Like I want to, and I'm thinking to myself, like, this is not, you're setting yourself up here. Like you don't want to be doing this, right? You want to, you have a college situation. That's good. And all that focus on that. If the phone rings on draft day, you deal with it then, you know? 
I agree because you you are you're setting yourself up for a big disappointment, and and all of us are different. You know, there's certain 18 year olds that can handle anything that comes their way. There's certain 18 year olds, and we've both been around them that can't handle that type of uh, you know, let's call it bad news. If you don't get drafted, where that can really rattle somebody. The fact that you just stay level headed, go because all you can do is as a player is go out on that field, do the best you can. Now it's out of your hands where you're drafted. You know, I remember my draft day yeah. at a college, you know, I, I got some, some advice from my dad, you know, I'm going into my junior year in college and, you know, you're reading back then it's baseball America, you know, Brett Booty's ranked right. uh, 27th to go in the country. Well, I had a mediocre junior year came on strong at the end. I, I end up getting drafted in the fifth round. So right. I remember I got that phone call and, you know, I'm that 20 year old kid and, and I'm angry and I'm going, oh, fifth round. You better not come at me with fifth round money. And, you know, I'm throwing a mini tantrum <laughs> when the when the scout for the Mariners call me. And then I talked to my dad and he was, you know, my dad was still playing. And he goes, uh, are you done, you know, having a tantrum? I said, what are you talking about? This is BS, dad. This is, he goes, Brett, here's the deal. It doesn't matter what you think. He goes, it's a done deal. It's what are they going to do? Redo the draft to, to make it the way yeah. you want it. And he's kind of mocking me. And after a while, I kind of thought I am acting a little bit ridiculous. This is out of my control. And he said, Brett, here's what I would do. Life isn't fair. First of all, I'm going to tell you that whether you should be a first round pick or not. The fact is you're not. I would get the best deal I could get. I would sign that contract as fast as I can. And I'd get my butt to a ball so you can have a really good half season in a ball in your first pro season you're going to start in double a he goes if yeah. you go and you kick and scream and 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 demand first round money you end up missing your short season you're going to start in a ball next year he said if you go out and kick butt you'll start in double a you're that much closer to the big leagues and i after you know i calmed down a little bit <clears throat> i took his advice in that first full season I'm in the Southern League in double A and I'm thinking, wow, dad was right. You know, and I was in the big leagues a year later. So these are little things along the way, I think. And that's a great story coming from your father and how he set you up for success. It's really cool things that that, you know, uh, maybe maybe the, maybe the fathers, maybe we do know something, Polly. I know when we talk to our yeah. kids, you, you know, they just think we're knuckle. They just think they think we're knuckleheads that have never gone through anything in life. But uh, it's it's so if you kids listen to the Boom Podcast out there, listen to your dad once in a while. He he might know a little <laughs> more than you think he does, and and these yeah. are little little life lessons. Um, Especially if your uh, your dad played the big leagues as long as yours yours did, and you're trying to be a big leaguer, I would listen to your dad for sure. And uh, you know, one last thing on that topic, my dad, you know, to kind of cap it off, that so I got drafted. You know, the draft was the first couple of days of June. Um, he booked a trip to the College World Series, and we went there before I signed because I signed fairly quick. I signed within two three weeks, I think. In the middle, we went to the College World Series, and he said. I'm taking you here. If you sign a contract, this is what you're going to miss right here. Look at it. And we went there and went there for three, three days, four days, saw some games, saw the whole thing. It was awesome. And he's like, I just want you to have all the information. If you sign a contract, this is what you'll be giving up. This is the height of college baseball right here. You should see it. And I did. And I was like, all right, where's the contract I'm signing? <laughs> That's right. Let me get out of here. I don't need to turn my hat inside out, put it up and do the rally rally. Yeah, I, so I don't know. I, I, honestly, I, 
was better for me to sign because I would have been a bad college player. Because I don't think I was a really good player. I was a hitter, but you know, college baseball, Division One college baseball, you're trying to go out there and win. I mean, the low minor leagues, like you know, like you can be really bad, and like it's about development. You usually have one tool that's really good. You got to work on everything else, and they allow you to be really bad. Um, I'm not sure what would have happened if I would have gone to college, but you know, we'll never know, and that's that. Um, you get drafted by the Dodgers, uh, historic organization, especially at that time. I think, uh, yeah, Lasorda is the, the manager with the big club, Yotaviro beach. Um, and you were drafted as a catcher. And I don't know if everybody knows that because, you know, we know right. you were playing first, first base. Um, you know, another high pick buddy of mine. I was just with him last night. I went to the angel game, Phil Nevin, you know, he was one, one. And he, he was a high school teammate of mine, and, and they made him into a catcher, and then he wasn't a catcher anymore. Tell me your uh, – when did you make that switch when you decided – or they decided, who decided that Paul Canerico is not going to be a catcher, we're going to go another route, and you end up being uh, a first baseman? Yeah, it's definitely something that's uh, at this point in time kind of comical, you know, about the catching because no one – you know, a lot of people just forget about that, which, you know, or never knew about it. And, and, and those stories exist with a lot of guys that become known as a big leaguer and you forget about, you know, what they originally did. But I always – I two things on that is I was the first catcher taken to that draft. So I always, like, Veritech was actually taking the pick behind me. And uh, so I always kind of, you know, jokingly, because obviously a guy like that is, you know, like one of the best catchers ever and kind of like was – but I'm like, ah, I was the first catcher taking a draft. But more importantly, I played with AJ Brzezinski for a long time, who, as you know, likes to, you know, like rib and needle people and kind of be like that kind of guy. He was taken in the second round that year. So when we played together, you know, I always would bring that one out as, as much as I can. Like, hey, listen, a guy would tell him about catching or like, you know, have we thought about calling this pitcher with that? He's like, what do you know? And I'm like, well, I was the first catcher taking a <laughs> draft. And, and, and by the way, AJ, I am the captain. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but anyway, so I, I started catching, you know, I got, went, like you said, I signed really quick. I went to short season, a ball catching. Um, and then I played a full season the next year in a ball as a catcher. I probably caught a hundred games or 90 games. And the, the results of it was like, I was not a good catcher. Like I, the things that at that point uh, they're asking you to do in terms of blocking and throwing and all that, I was certainly below average. Uh, flexibility was the issue. Like, why isn't this guy flexible enough? What's going on? And they just thought it was like, hey, we're going to keep working on it. We'll keep working on it. We'll keep working on it. I went to instructional league after my A-ball year. And it started to get a little painful. Like, I was like, guys, I mean, they're sitting there. I had guys, like, jumping on top of me, like, get down. You know, like, like it was like, you know, it was a different time. There wasn't all these different types of – I mean, you had x-ray machines and all that. But, like, there wasn't as much – uh, information to like delve in on a guy's body. Like now you can like do all kinds of things and scan and he's got this and he's got that. Um, but what happened was they said, let's, let's take some x-rays of your hips. And what they found out was um, this true story. I, I flew to LA instructionally towards the end of instructionally. I'd already finished like getting beat up for five weeks. And they said, we're going to have you go see Frank Job and like the doctors out there in LA. And they took the x-rays. I'm sitting there in office. By the way, I'm 19 years old. And the doctor comes in and he's like, listen, here's the thing. He's like, your catching career in my mind is over. And I, if I was you, prepare that in the next year or two, your baseball career is over. I'm like, what? Like, like out of nowhere. And so he, he, they show my hips 
and I have this degenerative condition that is like, I don't know how many percent of people have this or whatever. It's kind of just basically like the way my hips are put together is going to cause a degenerative effect over time that you can't really rely on it. So, and the best simplest way to describe it would be, you know, your, your ball and socket, your hip is a ball and socket joint. The ball I have in my socket is not a ball. It's much like a giant oval shape that clanks against the sides as I move. And that was what pain at that point was really giving me. So anyways, but I could still catch a little bit. It was just hard and whatever. And by that time, you're still young. You're not fully developed. You're 19. You're kind of getting developed. So anyways, I, I go back uh, to the Dodgers. Obviously, they had all the information. And Mike Socia was the catching instructor. Glenn Hoffman was the minor league director and uh, two great guys. And they're like, listen, here's the deal. It's your career. If you really want to be a catcher and you want to do this, like it's all up to you. You, but you got to go back to A-ball. You have to continue to work. There's no way you can advance as a catcher the, with what you do back there. Or, because I had swung the bat pretty well in A-ball as a 19-year-old, um, they said, or you can be the starting first baseman in double-A. And I'm like, give me the glove. Like, I've had enough, you know, and that was it. And then I moved to first. And then after that year, I did well at first. And they're like, at that point, they're trying to piece you in. I had a monster year at the plate. And they're like, now they're looking at the big league club. They have Caros. They have Zeal with like a year left in the deal. They're like, you think you can play third? And I'm like, I'll try, you know, and I went to AAA and played a year at third. And then that's, you know, right around the time, another six months, eight months is when I got traded to you with the Reds underneath the guise that I might be able to play some third base because remember they had Sean Casey from the beginning of that year. And I can remember getting to Cincinnati and early work with Ron Oster hitting me ground balls at third base and I could just remember the look on his face like, this guy is not a third baseman. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I know, you know, <laughs> like, I know I'm not a third baseman. Like, I'm over here just trying to ham an egg. And, like, I had decent hands and I had a good arm. But, like, I couldn't move, you know, that would you need. I didn't have the range or anything like that. And, um, and then my last piece of this equation is uh, my favorite story is uh, one of my favorites is I walk in after hitting, like, you know, a buck 80 over a month at Cincinnati. You're on that team. And I walk into my locker. And I look up, and I see a bag on the ground, and I, I'm looking, and I'm like, I, it was just something caught me off guard because I felt like I was in the right spot. But I'm looking up at the nameplate, and it says, boom. And as soon as I put the pieces together, I feel the tap on my shoulder. <laughs> and they're like, they need to see you in the office. And so what it was was they were sending me down. That boon was your brother. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's like, that was the end of it. I came back up in September, had a few at bats, but at that point it was like, Hey, you're a first baseman. And I, and I was, it was fine. And I always felt like, okay, fine. I know I can hit enough to play first, but so I just need to get the at bats. And I also need to kind of pull my head out of, you know, my behind and get going and like figure it out. And then I got traded to the White Sox and that was a whole different animal because um, they had the DH, you know, and you could work in another guy that was like that DH first base type. And, you know, then it went from there. But that's kind of like the story of it all and how it kind of evolved. Yeah, and I remember those times. I remember having me and you having talks. Uh, I, I remember it not vividly, but I do remember our talks. Uh, you were because I remember hearing about you before they traded for you. Because, in you know, with the Dodgers, you were twice, I think, organizational player of the year. You got your cup of coffee in 97 and 98 yeah. when you came over. Remember, you got traded with the big sweat, Dennis Reyes. I remember that. Yeah. And, and then uh, 
Yeah. Sean Casey was there. It was you. We had you. We had Sean Casey. They were kind of deciding, you know, which way are we going to go? Ends up being the greatest uh, decision for both of you. Sean goes on to have a really, really good career in Cincinnati. You go on to the White Sox and become, you know, one of the greatest White Sox of all time. So it worked out for everybody. You get traded for Mike Cameron, another one of my good buddies. Um, When you finally get traded from the Reds, to the White Sox and you have that 99 year and from start to finish, you're the guy you have a great, you have a great year. You hit 294, 24 homers and 81. I think you come in under the, uh, the manager at the time was Jerry Manuel. Tell me the difference between Paul Canerco and we all go through it. You know, that, that initial call to the big leagues where it's, it's up. Okay. I got to prove how good I am. I got to prove I belong here. All the, in Cincinnati, you're kind of treading your wheels. What's going to happen? Are they going to go with me? Casey, I'm taking ground balls at third. I'm not comfortable. Now all of a sudden they get that trade to the White Sox and they kind of clear the way you, like you said, you had the DH and first base. So you could work at, at both positions. 99, obviously was a huge year for you, a breakout year. Um, was that, was that a lot of, was that, did that clear your mind? Because we all need that as players. You know, finally, when you fi- finally think, man, I belong here. It's it seems like it's been forever. It's only it really hasn't. And there's there's tons of guys before it before us that have gone through the same things we do. But we think we're all, you know, feels like we're on an island when when yeah. we're not, you know, when we're not getting it done. Ninety nine, you get it done. Did you was there a moment during that season where you finally said, finally, all this work, you know, this Dodgers, Reds, uh, the struggles. Look, I put it all together. I, I'm a big leaguer now. Yeah. I, well, the thing is, the end numbers, you know, that you mentioned, that was a good year, but it didn't happen right away. Um, I, I in April and May, there was another guy there named Jeff Lee for left handed hitter. Uh, great I guy. We were almost platooning a little bit. And partly because it was my job, but like, I, I wouldn't take the reins, you know, I wouldn't kind of take it and run. I was, you know, I think like in May I was hitting, I don't know, maybe like 250 with like six or seven homers and like 25 RBIs, like not falling on my face, but I'm not setting the world on fire either. And again, you have these thoughts. Like I was in LA, I was in Cincinnati um, I think we've painted a picture by now that I'm I'm kind of a one-dimensional player. You know, I'm a hitter. And so it's like, if you're not putting the value forth with the hitting, what else are you doing? Well, I was not doing anything else that was extraordinary or, or above average. So it all kind of relies on the hitting. And um, I can remember being, and, and I was, I definitely gripped it tight and was, you know, very much had anxiety about it all and all that. And I can remember Jerry Manuel, you mentioned him, um, we were in the outfield shagging like um, because my my biggest fear was after what had happened in L.A. was getting sent down like many young players. Like when you get up, all you want to do is be there. You want to stay there, not get sent down. And I didn't know, you know, like what was going to happen again. I was kind of just doing OK. I wasn't doing brutal, but it was I was not like, you know, a for sure thing. And we were talking in the outfield and he's like, you know, hey, man, like you just got to relax and this and that. And we're talking. And I'm like, yeah, but man, like, I mean, you know, I just. And he could tell I was grinding and he just kind of looked at me. He's like, Hey, listen, bro. He's like, you're going to be here the rest of the year. Like you're going to be here the whole year. Like, don't worry about it. Like you're going to be here. You're going to be here this whole year. And like, it was kind of like a big exhale, you know, like, and, and whether he was like saying that and probably shouldn't have, cause you know, he can't control what a GM is going to do whatever. But it just, I, at that moment believed that, okay, I'm going to be here all, all year. And like, it just kind of took pressure off and it kind of, 
and I just remember that kind of like releasing it a little bit. And then I started to get going and I can remember like one series in the middle of June. And I just felt, as you know, there's that moment where you feel like yourself. And when I mean yourself, it might've been like when you dominated in the minor leagues, it might've been when you dominated in college or high school where you're like, that is me. Everything that was in between where I was fighting to get to this feeling was not me. Now I feel like myself again. And when you've gone through those types of struggles, like a lot of guys do, almost everybody struggles that comes up or they will at one point, when you get it back, the intent you have and the, uh, you know, just the, at least you should, when you get it, that feeling back, like your, your goal in life, your mission in life is like, I'm never letting that go again. You know what I mean? Like I am going to just be an animal out here. And you know, a lot of the lessons I learned like in LA and in Cincinnati, to be honest, I was just, I remember Piazza told me this when I was in LA, he's like, yeah, you know, you're too nice. You're too nice. Like you gotta be kind of a jerk to play this game. You gotta be kind of, and I didn't really know what he meant, you know? And, but like, then I got going in Chicago and I was like, you know, like I'm going to like, I started to play the game, not like frustrated, but like angry, you know what I mean? Angry that I was, anybody doubted me to begin with. And really that chip on your shoulder that I really never had to have because everywhere I was from high school and minor leagues, like I was always the, the best player, the number one pick or whatever else. I never really had a chip on my shoulder. Why should I have had one? And now I was like, I'm going to put this chip on my shoulder. And like, I, I, if people doubted me, there's people out here that didn't believe in me. There's two guys that traded me. There's this person that did this. Like I am out to like bury them, you know? And um, and it just, I didn't really, I don't think I ever looked up again until my last year when I was 38 years old and said, you know, maybe I should kind of enjoy this a bit. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the chip world, Paulie. Cause I had that, chip. Yeah. you know, I told you, I mentioned uh, coming out of high school, you know, I think I'm the greatest player in the world. I'm all CIF player of the year and, uh, he's too small. So my chip started early. You know, I had that chip and I took it to college. I took it to the minor leagues. I remember uh, in the minor leagues, them telling me, well, you know, he's a hitter. And I took a lot of pride in my defense. So, man, I was going to show them I was the greatest defender in the world and I worked my butt off. But, you know, looking back, those are those are funny times to me now to look at a young, you know, to look at yourself at that age and, and how we were processing things. But it really was a benefit for me to put that chip on my shoulder. I mean, I was a pissed off kid. Not not in a bad way. I was pissed off with a smile, but it, it motivated me and it got me up every day. I'm going to show you how good I am. I'm going to show you that I'm going to hit home runs. Tell me I'm too small, this and that. And it's interesting that you're right. You were a first round pick hailed from a young age. Everybody telling you how great you are until the point you got where, no, I'm going to bring it to you. Uh, I, I think that's a really uh, cool point. And it's not t we don't talk about it that much, but you bringing it up today. I, I think that's a really cool thing. You know, um, some of the best advice I got was a coach I had with the White Sox. This might be like the number one. You know how it is. You get advice from a lot of people, a lot of great things. So one of the, the bench coach there was a guy named Joe Nosek. He was an older guy at that point and a great guy, great baseball man, like played the game forever and coached forever. And, you know, again, I was – this game is very frustrating. As you know, you can really get yourself down some rabbit holes and, like, you know, really – and he comes up to me one day. He's like, listen, man, I've been in this game a long time. And here's what I'm going to tell you. Like, I know your type of guy. Like, you're the kind of guy who grips it tight. You get mad. You're kind of a snapper. You know, you like to throw a helmet or slam a helmet and this and that. He's like, listen to what I'm going to tell you. He's like, this game, the game of baseball, 
you cannot play this game frustrated. It will continue to get worse, and you will continue to spiral down. You cannot play this game frustrated. And I'm like, okay, never heard that one. Like, of course, Joe, you can't play this game frustrated. He says, but you can play it angry. And I was like, okay. He's like, what you need to do is figure out the difference between frustration and anger. Because a lot of times you think that you're angry and you're frustrated. But when you're angry, you can play this game because you're taking your anger out on who you're playing against, the pitcher. You find something. It's off of you. You're not thinking about yourself. You are out. And, and you have this, this, this like, you know, glow about you that you are just, and many guys have this. I know you had it. A lot of guys, almost anybody that's been any good has had it. Um, and, and that's the key is when I started to understand, like, am I frustrated right now or am I angry? Uh, I'm frustrated. Like, this is on me to figure this out. But when I could really keep that chip and that anger of, like, I'm great and I'm, I'm fine. I'm going to kill this guy today. And, like, that's when, you know, like, I really sustain things for a long time, you know. Yeah, 2000, 2001, two great years. Uh, 2002, it's your first All-Star game. I think yeah. that was the famous All-Star game where it, it was a tie at the end. And, and Selig <laughs> sitting in the front row with egg on his face like, what, what do we do now? Um, but let's talk about 02 a little bit. <clears throat> you hit 300 for the first time in the big leagues, 27 and 104. Uh, you're an All-Star, like I'd mentioned. And it's your first home run derby. Tell me, well... <laughs> Excuse me. I remember my first derby. The rules are different now. We watch the game now. You know, they're these guys are hitting 80 home runs, Paul. I just watched that kid from Seattle hit 87 homers. I'm like, well, back in our day, it was like you made out. So like four or five in a round was good. But I, I yeah. think they got it right from an entertainment uh, value. I think that the way they've changed the rules now. I think they got it right for the fans. I think they, it gives them a good show. Back in those days, it was a little bit different. But it's your first All-Star game. You get asked to be in the home run derby. I remember when that happened to me, that home run derby. I felt like, wow, they're asking me to hit with the big boys. It was kind of a, a cool thing for us. Give me your home run derby experience. Yeah, I mean, first, the simple thought is don't get shut out, right? You just want to hit a home run or a few home runs or something just to kind of show that, like, all right, yeah, like you belong because, you know, there's been a few guys over the years where you just go there and it's like crash and burn. And cause it is hard. Like anybody who's done it, you talk to them and like the number one thing that's bizarre is you're facing batting practice speed. Like we do every day as a hitter in the big leagues without the whole net and shell around, you know, the turtle shell thing around you, like you do in BP every day. So you have a stadium full of fans, you have adrenaline that's off the charts and you have a situation where a guy's throwing to you, but he's only throwing, you know, like 60 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour. And, you know, you have to let this ball get to you. And you're just so amped up. I remember I took a, um, I had a bat. Someone on my team had a bat that was like a 35, 33. And I swung like a 34, 31. So I just said, you know what? There's a good chance that I'm going to be so geared up for this that let me take this longer bat, this heavier bat. It's going to probably feel like a toothpick. And, um, that probably helped for sure. And, uh, I think I did okay. Like I got, I, I hit like six or seven home runs, I think the first round. And I was like, okay, that's respectable. It's not going anywhere, but like, there'll probably be a couple guys that do worse. Like I'm good. Like if I don't touch a bat the rest of the night, like let's do it. Let's crack open a beer. Like it's over. I did my thing. It's awesome. Well, next thing you know, something happened. The guys couldn't hit homers. I, I think I advanced to the semifinals or something against Jambi. And I'm like, I got to hit again. And 
you know, I, I wound up like tying him. We didn't hit many either of us. And then he beat me like in like a swing off thing. Um, and it, it turned into a real fun thing because I became comfortable as it went. But man, the nerves I had before that thing, and I was also the first guy to go. So, you know, that, that to me itself was very nerve wracking. And uh, man, it just, you know, it is, it's like going on a roller coaster and you go way up to the top and it's like, you don't want to do it, but then when it starts to go, you're just like, all right, here we go. Like, let's see what happens. You know, you just give into it, you know? And you're right. It's it. We go, we go into it with, all right, just don't embarrass yourself, save face, get through it. You know, if you happen to get on a run, great. If not just, Hey, good job today. And that's all you need. Like you said, you go have a beer and it's, and it's over with, <clears throat> I think the difference now, like a lot of things that are different with the game in 2022. I think these kids actually practice it, you know, like yeah. without the, without the shell. So it seems like these guys in the home run derby these days, it seems like they've been doing it their whole life. It's not that easy just to sit out there without a shell over you. Like you mentioned that cage that we hit, you know, before a game every day, 162 games a year, all of a sudden you take that away. It's a different, it's a time and space thing. It's like, we're not used to this, you know, the, it, it just feels different. I think the kids today almost like practice it because they're doing too well to just, oh yeah. yeah, I'll be in the home run derby, just jump out onto the field. Oh, well, you, one could argue that they're practicing it during the games nowadays. That's right. Um, that's right. That's right. So yeah, there's definitely, you know, you can tell that there's, uh, it's become, you know, with the, the way they do it and the way they build it up and, you know, and all that has become more of a, uh, but you know, here's what I say about it. Like think about like the dunk contest in the NBA. It was such a huge thing when I was a kid and throughout the eighties. And like, does anybody even care about that anymore? No, but the home run derby, it's gone the other way. People care just as much or more. So that is a great part of the all-star game. And it is a lot of fun to watch. I mean, this year I was in Chicago at a restaurant and I was with my kid and some other, another family had kids and it was such a big deal. Like they were streaming it at the table to watch the home run derby. So that tells you a lot right there that you got kids that wanted to tune in that were afraid they were going to miss it. Um, so they've obviously done a good job with it and publicized it and kind of like they kept, they've kept the ball rolling because that's something that's very easy to kind of like, it's like, it's like the dunk contest where I think people like, like how, how much more different can we make this to make people interested, you know? Yeah. Did Ozzy come in uh, 04? Was that Gann's first year 04 or was it 05? Correct. Correct. 04. Tell me the difference. Ozzy Gian come. I was a, uh, he was a teammate of mine. I uh, played in the Braves in 1999. Uh, he was at the end of his career. Uh, everybody knows Ozzy. He's, he's got a personality and, and, and it's out there. Um, Chick. Changing from Jerry Manuel to Ozzy Gian, what's the differences you saw in 04? You end up, you have a great year in 04. You hit 41 homers. Um, how was the difference in that ball club with yeah, him at I the mean, helm? I think, personally speaking, you know, the general thought was looking back on it is I, I had the right manager at the right time in my career, personally for me. Like Jerry was the perfect guy for me at that moment, patient guy and really you know, was the perfect guy. Then Ozzy came in kind of like when I knew, okay, I belong here. I'm kind of a dude here. Now it's time to like get like and win and like be that kind of guy. And he was great for that. And then towards the end of my career, I had Robin Ventura who obviously had a great career. And like, he was a great guy to like wind down my career because he kind of helped me wind mine down, you know? And so that I was always lucky in, in those regards. I don't lose sight of that. 
But in terms of Ozzy coming to the White Sox, um, yeah, he was he was fiery. Obviously, a lot of times when guys hire when teams hire new managers, a lot of times it's the polar opposite of what they just had, and that was clearly the case there. And I think one of the biggest things was, um, you know, I mean, Ozzy he's a great baseball man, knows the game, played the game. Chicago loved him because he played there. Um, but he was very, um, like, you know, set in his ways in terms of like, I'm not coming in here. Like, like he, he was hard, you know, like he, if you, if you, if you showed up on time and you played hard for him, there's not really anything that he would not do for you, like in any capacity. But if you didn't do those things, if you didn't play harder, he thought you were trying to shortchange, like he, so he kind of came in that 2004 and kind of like observed and kind of saw, cause we had some talent there and we never really did anything with it. And he kind of observed and kind of like cleaned house, so to speak. And it kind of got things the way he wanted it. And then, you know, Oh five obviously was, you know, the thing and we won the world series and all that. But um, he was, I mean, Ozzy was great. I love him to death. And he was, he was crazy and nuts with like the media and all that kind of stuff. But as a player, it was great because, and I'm sure it was somewhat intentional, but I'm not sure. I just think it's the way Ozzy is. Honestly, like the media didn't really come to us all that. Why would you come to like the boring players when you had him, you know, <laughs> like he, he would give yeah. you everything you need. So, and he, and the times where we were going bad, you could tell he would even ramp it up more and be like, what can I do today to like cause a stir? So they don't go ask my team how bad we're playing, you know? And, um, you could, you could see it, you know? And, um, th- another part with it was the coaching staff he had with them, all ex white sock guys that played there in the eighties all guys who love the organization that cared for the organization that cared for Jerry Reinsdorf, that cared for the people that work there. And all of that mattered too, because it, it, you, you know, it's a, it's a professional game and it's, you know, it's a big league thing. And it's like, not everywhere. Everybody's kind of a hired gun coming in to make their money and, and all that. And, but this was different. It was, the culture was more, you know, you had to buy into like, you know, the white sock thing. And like, we had coaches that cared about, how you treated people who work there and all that. So it was a great thing and, and it turned into a great thing. And really that time from about 2005 all the way to when Ozzy left, um, you know, maybe a year or two before it went a little sideways at the end, but um, I really feel like that might be the best time in like the history of the White Sox, like in terms of like just, just everything about it. I mean, I'm obviously partial because I was there, but if you really look back at their history, like it was a great time, you know? I remember being just an opponent watching you guys and, and watching Ozzy and, and how he ran the show. I think it was the perfect time at that time for the White Sox. And, and as a, as a, as a player on the other team, I just thought, man, that looks like, you know, I know Ozzy's having fun cause I did play with him, but I'm, I'm also thinking, I think I, this team is responding to his personality. And uh, I, I thought it was a great time. And obviously you win the world series in 2005, but, I, I thought he was, I thought he was entertaining. I loved listening to his interviews and uh, he told it like it was, and he, he, he ran it like he wanted to run it. You know, you got to give him that yep. credit. Um, the question I have about Chicago for the guys, especially guys like yourself who, who spent a long time uh, playing for the White Sox, Chicago, Give it to me. Cubs, White Sox. Obviously, you win the World Series in 05. There hasn't been a world championship there on either side in a long time at that point. What's it like in the city? Is, is it a Cubs? Is it White Sox? Is it black and white? If you hate the or, or do the Cubs fans, when, when Paul Canerco goes out uh, for dinner, appreciate you as much as the Cubs? 
Tell me what it's really like as a player that was there for a long time. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is um, if you really like think about the whole Chicago land area, um, Bears and Blackhawks, right, have everybody. Bears, right, because they have everybody's allegiances is to them. So the vibe on those two teams is clearly like everybody's in the same the same boat, right, and pulling for them. And it's uh, when the Blackhawks were really good, it place was electric. Um, I guess we're still waiting for the Bears to bounce back from '86, but um, but the Cubs fans, there's no doubt that there's more Cubs fans than White Sox fans. Um, just generally speaking, in terms of like the 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 interest level, I guess, and a lot of that has to do with the ballpark and you know the, the surroundings of the ballpark and all that kind of stuff. But you know, I always took pride in like I always just felt like my makeup, it's even now like is just so much more for the South side in terms of like our fan base was smaller, not small, but smaller, but much more um, in tune with maybe the baseball part of it. And I would say like the, the, the feeling there is that the White Sox fans, like when we would do interleague, especially early on, like, you know, interleague's kind of worn off with how long they've done it. Sometimes the scheduling now, like a, a two-game series in May just doesn't really have a whole bunch of juice to it anymore. But like when it was the three-game series in June and July, their place, our place, at, and back when interleague was kind of first going, um, it meant so much to our – those were like playoff games to our fans. Like if we won – I remember play, our fans saying – I would rather sweep the Cubs both series than make the playoffs. <laughs> like they were absolutely insane about it, which I was thinking that doesn't seem right. But again, when both teams hadn't won in so long, really the goal was when if it would seem like both teams weren't going to make the playoffs, that was the whole year. So I love those games. I always played well in those games. Like I knew how important those games were. And I just, uh, those were, those were awesome. Um, but as far as the Cubs fans and all that, it is generally speaking a great sports town. So, they respect guys that I think get it and show up and do the work and earn their paycheck. So whether that's a White Sox fan looking at a Cubs player um, or vice versa, I never got treated bad. I could count on two hands how many times I was, you know, someone, you know, in a situation put, you know, did something or kind of put, you know, put me in a spot where I'm like, you know, where they were trying to be something, you know, kind of popping off to me in the town, like everybody in that town, it's a great sports town. Anytime, you know, you get, I'm sure asked this question all the time, like when you were playing, what was your favorite place to go? And the answer I always give is, well, excluding Chicago, because that is the best in the summer. There's not a better place. <laughs> then I begin the conversation because even as a home player, I played in the best place in my opinion. So, um, but actually, you know, it's funny. My second answer is Seattle. I love Seattle. I love going there. Um, I love the stadium. I love hitting there. Um, I love the city. I, I love everything about it. So Seattle's my first answer. I think that new stadium was, was great when it opened and I still think it's great. Um, so that's always my second answer. So, um, you know, you can, and, and part of it was, you know, I get to go play against Brett Boone, you know, that's always a big highlight. Without a doubt. Without, that had Without to be the highlight. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, five, obviously a huge year. You're an all-star. You hit 40 homers again. Uh, and I like that team. You mentioned AJ Pruszynski. We had him on the show a few months ago. He, he's always been, and, and it's funny because you know, that everybody loved to hate AJ Pruszynski and I had gone on a few Nike trips with him. So I kind of knew AJ and I would laugh because his perception was, you know, that he's kind of a pain in the ass. Oh, Pruszynski, look at him doing it again. And I talked to A, but I knew AJ and I, and I always liked him. 
And when I had him on the show, he told me, he said, yeah, Brett, he said, you know, I kind of had that reputation and I kind of fed on it. It kind of be, became a shtick for me. Like I've got to live up to that villain type character. And now it makes a lot of sense looking back at AJ, but I always loved him. You had Jim Tomey on that team. Uh, Jermaine Dye, Burley, who was a guy I always respected, uh, playing playing against him. And one of my favorites of all time, and he was with me in Seattle, but big, big Fred was on your team, Freddie Garcia. Uh, oh. I remember that. I remember that team vividly. Um, that year, and I, and I looked at your postseason that year. It was ridiculous. You lost one game in the postseason. You swept Boston. Uh, you beat the Angels 4-1. You end up sweeping the Astros. You're the ALCS MVP. Um and, and going back to that Chicago question we had, you know, it is. It's kind of like yep. in New York. There's the Mets and there's the Yankees, more of a Yankee town. But I'm interested at that year, that 05 particular season, Cubs are out of it. White Sox are. Do you feel that city, even Cubs fans kind of, well, our Cubs are out of it. We love to hate the White Sox, but that, they're still Chicago. Did you feel like the, like the, the Cubs fan? kind of swayed over to you guys like, well, let's support them because we're still in Chicago. Oh, man, you know. Or do they stick to those Cubs? Like, no, nope, screw I think it. What you we're hear Cubs fans. Silence. You hear silence from either side. Like, I remember when the Cubs were in the World Series in 2016 when they won. As a fan, as a White Sox fan, I'm like, I don't want them to win. I want to be the only team that's been. That was <laughs> the right. big thing in 05. That makes sense. It was it had been like a hundred, you know, I don't know how many years since the city, the last time that city had seen a world series winner, you could make the argument that like, it wasn't even of this world in terms of the time and place of like, you know, like what the, the world was in, it was like the dark age, you know, it was ancient times when either team had won before. So there was this kind of suspense, like what would it actually look like if one of these teams won the world series, like would the whole city explode? Like what, like, what would happen? So it's always been a gigantic sense of pride. I mean, maybe my biggest sense of pride that we got there first. And because that was not the script, right? Like the script was that the Cubs would do it first, not us. Uh, especially after you got to get yourself back in the headspace of the Red Sox had just won an 05. So everybody's like, okay, it's the Cubs turn now. You know, and when the Cubs are the next up, no one even, you know, talks about us or, you know, and all that. So when we came in and did it, it certainly. I, I know it just wasn't what most of certainly Cub fans, but you know, it just didn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Cause it was like, it was supposed to be the Cubs, but it was always such a sense of pride for all of us because we're like, well, you got to play the game on the field. Like we're the ones who did it and bring that whole entire celebration and the party to the, um, to the, I mean, it just, I, I always tell people like, you're just a player and you know, you, you play, you're, you're basically on loan, right? Whether you play five years, 10 years, like you're there, and you kind of come and go, there's going to be somebody to replace you and you kind of move on. But if we would have known how important that was to win that world series, I mean, we knew it was important. It's the world series. You want to win it. But I still get to this day, people coming up to me and the things that the things that you hear, like the stories and like the, the, the people, the generational things that go back that, cause they had not won one, you know, and, stories about fathers and mothers and grandfathers dying and all, all that stuff. I've had people come up in tears, you know, just to shake my hand, you know, and if we would have known all that, <laughs> I, I don't know how much pressure we could have put on ourselves. We probably wouldn't have got it done, but thank God we were just in such a bubble and I wasn't conscious of that. And it wasn't, you know, um, but that, that's definitely something I take, you know, now that it's happened 
and it, it happened. It was like, you know, looking back, it's, it's definitely something, again, I take the most pride that we were there, get there first. As a player, I'm happy for the Cubs and all that, because you know as a player, unless you're just a jerk, it's hard to do well in this game. It's hard to win this game. So anybody who does that and gets – they deserve it. If they're a good person, they, they deserve it, and they're not a jerk, and they're not a person that – there's definitely some people you root against. Um, but when the Cubs won in 2016, I was happy for – as a professional, I guess you could say, for all those guys in terms of winning. But as a fan, it's always like, no, like – as a White Sox fan, I'm all for the White Sox all the time. And my fans, in terms of whatever they want, that's what I want. So if they don't want the Cubs to win, I don't want them to win either. Um, but, you know, it's all good. And, that's again, it's a great city. And um, of all the things I did in my career, whether it was all-star games or hits or home runs or this or that or whatever, everything is so far in second place compared to winning a World Series for me. No, and you put it in perspective. You're right. And we talk about it a lot on the Boone podcast about how just what you said, how difficult it is. If people only knew how difficult it was to to get not only get to a World Series, but win a World Series. And you're right. I find myself, especially as I get older, you know, watching these guys, watching the Atlanta Braves a year ago. And and the fan in me, you know, separate who I like, who I dislike, uh, just to see those players and I'm thinking, I hope you guys appreciate this because this is so hard and it's such a special moment. So you're right. It's not about cheering against or, or, or cheering for it's kind of like appreciating how awesome that is winning a world championship, how cool it is. You, you mentioned you always thought what it would be like to win. Now all of a sudden you win it. You go to the parade. I think you end up getting to the go to the White House. I think it's the Bush presidency at the time. Take me mm-hmm. through that 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 parade. Was it everything you thought it'd be in Chicago when you got on that float? Oh, it was way more. In fact, I would say if like if you pulled all the guys that were on that team, like what was the most surprising part of this whole run? I bet you the parade would probably be the answer you'd get the most because. Um, I don't know if we, I don't know if we knew what to expect, but we got on these buses and we left, you know, the ballpark there and we're going through like the South side and there's tons of people on the side of the street. And you're like, yeah, this is great. It's a parade. Like you're going through the streets and it's all the fans that are the White Sox people. And just, you know, throughout this little course, there's thousands of people and you're like, this is what it is do a world series parade. And then we like take it to the center of downtown uh, in this area where, there was like in the streets, like 2 million people, you know what I mean? And you're like, I've never seen a a sea of humanity like that. And, you know, it was just like, I don't think anybody, everybody was so after that whole day was over, we were just still, I can't believe like what my eyes saw today. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of like in 1918, whoever won the world series, like it didn't look like that back then. People didn't have, you know, there weren't TVs and actively like news and phones and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there wasn't, so what was this going to look like in like the modern world? And, um, we were like, Oh my God, this is it. Like we did it. And this is what it looks like. This is crazy. Like Chicago has never seen this. I mean, you could probably even say like when the bears won in 86, cause that was like the next, if you went back, that was probably the biggest deal that happened, you know, previous even then that was like a different time, you know? And so it was just this weird feeling of like, you felt so small and um, you try to soak it in. And 
as you know, when you're in the thick of it as a player and you're in your 20s, you get told all the time by like, like you just made the comment, like don't take it for granted, soak it all in and really, you know, t- enjoy it while you're doing it. But the reality is, the reason why you're doing good as a player and having a great year or winning the world Series, the reason why you're doing those things most of the time, all the time really is you're not soaking it all in and enjoying it because you are, you are, your mind is on the task at hand and there's things that go that you don't enjoy and you can't soak it all in because if you soak it all in, you don't get the job done. And so, you know, I always laugh. I, I gave a speech to spring training to the White Sox, like a little talk in the clubhouse. And I'm like, I'm not going to come in here like every old guy. I've sat in that chair for 20 years and some guy would come in and be like, don't take this for granted. Like one day it's going to be over. Enjoy every step of the way. I'm not going to say that to you guys because I know it's, it's impossible to do it while you're playing because you guys have to be, you know, like in a pocket there in your mind and in a zone that, you can't sit there and go to every single city and see all the sites and enjoy all the things and see all your friends and your family and take care of everybody. Cause if you do that too much, you don't get the job done. You know, you don't, you don't hold your job down. You don't, you know, and all that. So, you know, looking back on it now, I wish there was things I did to enjoy it a little bit more. I probably could have enjoyed it a little bit more, but it's one of those things. I mean, whether it's raising your kids or, or, or really anything, you always wish you could go back and kind of like, you know, maybe say, I, I should have probably taken more inventory on that. It wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered if I would have done that. I still would have played the same, but you know, I don't know how you were when you played, but for me, I just, there was no time for things to creep in um, that were kind of, I guess you could call them enjoyable. It was more about the task at hand and we'll enjoy this when it's over kind of thing. And um, I, although I do think that's the right way to do it, I probably could have lightened up a little bit and maybe enjoyed the, the smelled the roses a little bit along the way, you know? Well, I think you're right. And I think we all go through that. We're not worried about uh, taking in the beauty of Wrigley field or, or Fenway park. It's like, no, I got Pedro to face tonight. What do you talk about? I can't, right. I can't enjoy this. You know, Oh, you should be lucky to have that uniform on your back. Yes. When we're, when we're older and we're sitting back reflecting, of course it was a, a, spectacular it's like a movie getting to wear a big league uni for 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 what you do for a living but when you're going through it it's the grind it's like hey my swing stinks right now and i got to get my swing good because i got so and so so and so and so and so in the next three days and by the way i know i'm not getting a day off so i got to be ready (laughs) i don't have time to soak in this this great new ballpark they just built i could care less if it falls in between one of those defenders then that's great then this ballpark's the greatest of all time i I remember going, Paulie, to uh, to San Francisco as a young kid, as a you know a young player, and thinking, "Wow, what a city!" and and uh, I want to go see Alcatraz. Well, now I'm 53 years old. I haven't been to Alcatraz yet, <laughs> and one day <laughs> I'm going to get there. One day I'm going to get there. I never did, you know. When I was in Boston, so much history in Boston. You know, my grandfather played there, and it wasn't till my final year and I, and I kind of, I went to Boston and, and you know how, you know, internally. And I thought this might, you know, I don't know whether or not I'm going to retire or not, but I might. So I remember being in Boston and taking it in and going, wow, you've been playing in this kind of cathedral, this, this landmark for so many years. 
And you never thought one time about how cool it is on a day game in the history of this of this stadium and who's played on these fields. You know, my gramps stood yeah. right here. I never thought about that before until I was a little bit older and, and right on the brink of retiring. So you're right. I don't think it's 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 natural for us as as young players in our 20s uh, to really be that mature guy to go step outside the box. Oh, I'm going to get up today. I'm going to go down here to this wonderful city because I have things to do and I've got to take advantage of the position I'm in. That's not that's not natural yeah. for us to do that. The natural thing is to sleep in, to feel good when we get to the ballpark and to grind it the hell out because we play 162 and it's so hard. Um but you're right. The reflecting part is, yeah, maybe, man, I wish, yeah, I could have, should have, would have. We all have those. Yeah, I wish I would have taken yeah. this in a little bit more. But for the most part, you know, we were pretty lucky to do what we did and and uh, just pretty cool. I do tell that to young players. If you can, in between grinding on film and who you're facing next, uh, check this out when you're in when you're in Minneapolis. It's really cool. You know, th- yeah. those little things. But uh, you're right. It, part of Part of being successful is that listen i'm not taking in the sights i i'm i'm so focused on the on the task at hand and uh i don't have time for that stuff and i and i yeah, think i think most guys you woke up every day like scared to death you'd never get a hit again you know without a doubt the people <laughs> you know you know, what, you know what, it's funny isn't it funny how fans just think they have no idea what's really going through our body like, oh my gosh, this last time I faced here, I, I couldn't see. And that he embarrassed me. I, I, I swung at three sliders and I missed him by a foot. I cannot do that. And and all morning I'm thinking about that. Last time I faced him at this time, we have a five o'clock game. Uh-oh, the shadows are going to be there. All right, just yeah. get through that first at bat. <laughs> you know, they just, because we play it on the outside, like we're so cool. Like, oh no, no problem. This is what we do for, we're inside my heart's beating going, man, this is so hard. Just get me through this first at bat. Don't embarrass yourself. Oh, and sometimes, Wow. That was better than I thought. Now the now you relax and and maybe have a great game, or maybe you go up there and you chase that first slider because you can't see it. And you go, here we go again. How am I going to survive this this at bat? Let alone this game. Oh man, yeah, I'm starting to sweat already over here. I'm, bring, I'm bringing you back. All right, we'll move on. Oh six, you're an all star again. You drive in 113, hit hit 313. Um, oh wait, you signed a, a three year deal. You end up going to the uh, to the playoffs that year, um, and and this gets me to an interesting part in your life and your career. Uh, in 2010, uh, you're an all star. 2011, you're an all star again. 2012, three great years. You're an all star all three. I think this is around the time where Ventura now is your manager. And by the way, Robin, without getting into it. I know him from playing against him. I know him from mutual friends. I, I, I by no means know him well. I've always loved him. I, he was hilarious. He would come over when we were stretching, and he'd be talking to whoever buddies and you know on our team, and he'd be doing imi- imitations. And I just always loved Robin Ventura. I was a kid when he was like Mister College Baseball, so I that was my high school time. Where oh, Robin Ventura, you know, he's the the almighty Robin Ventura. But then I played against him for years and years. I really always had an appreciation for him. Um, but this was interesting to me. Kenny Williams, and I don't know what the year was. You found out about it later. He actually considered 
making you the player manager. Although he said, I guess it, it, the story goes this way and you can, you can straighten me out on it, that he never approached you about doing it, but thought about doing it. Is that true? Well, I, yeah, I, obviously I can't jump into his head about what he thought about. I know he talked about it. Um, we, we never spoke about it or anything like that, which if we had the first things out of my mouth would have been like, Kenny, are you crazy? <laughs> like, like, I'm just trying to like get myself in order to play a seven o'clock game. You don't want me to worry about which right-hander to get up there in the middle of the game. Um, but yeah, I don't, let me just say for the record, um, maybe a player manager or something that worked in the twenties and the thirties, or I think Pete Rose did it in the seventies into the eighties. There was a, again, different time where um, the scrutiny of what goes on nowadays, or even in the last 25 years or whatever, I'm not sure a, any human being, could withstand being a player manager um, in today's world or even in the last, like I said, 20, 30 years, because there's just too much that has to be done now as a, as a manager. And um, again, I, that's something that I was flattered by the, uh, you know, I, I think any, uh, any player would tell you yourself included that um, a compliment that you would always want to hear is that like, you know, you're a heads up ball player or you have a high ba- baseball IQ or that you kind of, um, you know, you see the game in its entirety, not just through the lens of like what you do. And this goes back to my catching days. Like I always felt like it always bothered me that I was kind of because of my body and my physical tools that I was reduced to playing first base because in my mind, I was always a catcher, you know what I mean? And I always um, fought like a catcher on everything that went on out there and still do. Um, so it always bothered me that I was kind of like, you know, don't disrespect the first baseman, but it was kind of like, I felt like mentally I had so much more to offer to the game than what my body could give it, you know? And um, so yeah, over time, anybody that would have been around me or, or I guess experienced my time would have been like, you know, this is the kind of guy that understands how to use starting pitching or understands relief pitching, understands the X's and O's of a game. And maybe that's where Kenny was going with it. Um, but again, I, I just, that's such a far reach. Uh, again, flattering that he would say such a thing. Um, but I don't think that's uh, even the best of them. The guys who play the game easy that are really smart guys. And Robin would have been one of those guys. I mean, Robin was, um, he would be the kind of guy, like everything we've talked about today, in terms of like enjoying it along the way and all that. Robin always had the appearance that he could do it all. He could produce on the field be the guy that was a starting player, a gold glove, all-star caliber player. But it also felt like he had, you know, like a normal life that could enjoy it. And like, you know, had it was fun and it just, he just played the game easy, you know, and um, he might've been a guy that could have pulled off like a player manager thing. Uh, and I loved playing for, for Robin at that point in time, you know, he came in, I think 2012. So really my last couple of years, and I think my first year might've been good for him, but then like the next two is when it kind of started to go. And, um, but he was great to me and I love being around him. So funny, such a great sense of humor. Um, and just, just a great guy. Like, I mean, everything that anybody, I've never heard anybody say anything bad about Robin Ventura. The player manager thing, you know, it's kind of a, it's a pipe dream. Like how cool would it be to just get, you know, you're sitting there on the top step. You're like, this guy sucks. I, you know what? I'm going to pinch hit for him. <laughs> it sounds great. And if you pull it off, it would be awesome. But could you imagine, you know, son, come here. You sit down. I'm going to pinch hit for you. All right, Joey. Hey, you take over the reins. I'm going to go hit. 
and then come punching out and coming back. And now you got to deal with that player that you just pinch hit for. So there's the downside to it and the upside. But it, I think it'd be a fun, almost like a dream thing. Like, yeah, I'd like to do it for a day and see how it worked out. I pinch hit. I definitely would pick that guy I didn't like the most on that team. I'd definitely uh, pinch hit for him. Um, we get to 2000. No, no, 2012. You got so much yeah. in, in your bio. I, I thought there was some really cool stuff. We talk about not in, you know not taking the time to really take it all in, but from a young kid that got drafted with the Dodgers, April 25th, I think 2012, you hit your 400th homer. It's got to be sinking in at that time. Like, wow, I got the 400 home runs. Uh, was that a time where you were thinking pretty damn cool? And it, did you ever dream of something like that? Um, I mean, the honest answer is no. Again, at that point in time, I was still kind of in that. In fact, if anything, I kind of had a kind of a renaissance there. If you notice, like if you're looking at the years there, like where you go like 99 to 2005 and 6, you see 08 was a rougher year. 09 was kind of like, eh. Um, and then 2010, 11, 12, like all like really good. Like you could argue that 2010, I think I was 34 years old was maybe my best year of my career. Um, and so at that point, I'm sitting there going, and, and, and it all had to do with a couple things. Um, I, I had hitting and understanding hitting um, really uh, mechanically and all that stuff really was at like its peak. But also the most important part of it was just, I really, in 2008 to 2009, it was at that point, and every, every player knows this, and you can, you can tell me your, your experience with it, but you reach that point where you realize your body's going downhill, and you realize if you want to keep playing this game, you have to kind of clean up your mental side of the game and how you play, because you can play the game completely wrong as a young player, and your talent and your body can kind of overcome the stupidity of you as a person and a player. Um, as you get older and your body starts to leave you, if you're still trying to play the game that way, you'll be done. You'll be phased out and your career will end. Um, so right around then is when I kind of sensed it and realized it. I actually had some good people around me that were like, Hey man, you kind of need to like figure some stuff out and the way you process things and the way you, you know, kind of the way you deal with things, you need to get better at these things. If you want to continue to play that, if you remember Jim Tomey was on that team at that point and we had talked about it and I had a chance to watch him, right? Jim was a great role model in terms of an older player doing what it takes to keep playing. And so I had him around, I had other people. So I kind of made a point to start really sharpening up and getting away a lot of the stuff that maybe had been with me since I started playing this game at like, you know, 10 years old. Um, a lot of the baggage that you have and you kind of get in these habits. Um, I started to like undo a lot of those things and play the game and process the game a different way. And then lo and behold, 10, 11, 12, it was like a new lease on life. Like I felt like I was not only producing and doing well, it felt easy. <laughs> it felt easy and I was older. So to answer your question, in 2012, I was like, I can do this forever because I don't even know if it matters how my body feels. Like I have a handle on this mentally that I can keep doing this for a long time. And then, you know, a year later, year and a half later was like the body said otherwise, <laughs> but yeah. I was proud of myself for attacking those things because I think that every player, you know, a lot of players, they come up and they might have that six, seven year career, eight year career. I'm like, what happened? Well, what happened was the physical ran out and maybe you didn't, you know, 
fix those other things that might have made you valuable to keep around the clubhouse or a way to maybe get another five, six years out of your career, or three or four, or whatever. I was always proud of myself more of those years than any other year I played baseball because anybody can do it when you got the talent and the body, right? Like anybody can, when you're 22 years old or 25 years old, it's like when pitchers talk about like, yeah, give me a hundred mile an hour fastball with a wicked slider. I'm not impressed by a guy who's out had success with that. You know, Jamie Moyer going out and having successful starts after successful starts, as you know, you played with him. That to me is like, that guy should receive the highest praise. He's bringing the least out to the field and getting the job done. Mark Burley, right? A later in his career, like awesome. Anybody who can walk out there with that and get it done, like they've reached like Jedi level. You know what I mean? I think, I think that's such a wise thing that you just said. I mean, you did when the physicality starts to leave us because it all, it, it, it leaves all of us. And, and I remember having a talk with Robbie Alomar in my early thirties and he was getting to, to 35 36 and you know play in the middle infield there's a lot of wear and tear second short center field oh, yeah. but I, re- I remember having that talk and it's a guy that i looked to my whole career you know i was uh, uh robbie was the the best second baseman of the 90s and and i always aspired wow robbie alomar is kind of the north star for my position and i remember having a talk with him when the physicality was leaving him and he said, Brett, when I hit 35 years old, he said, all the mileage on my body, it seemed like overnight <laughs> I lost it. And, and, you know, I'm sitting there in my early 30s, still have the physicality going, come on, that doesn't happen. That's what's he talking about? You know, I think we were at a bar having beers and who am I not the question, you know, like, oh, come on, you're just weak. You're being weak. I'll tell you, I got there and it happened to me when I was 35 or, or 36 years old. It's like overnight man, I just don't have that spring in my legs anymore. And I think why I said that's such a wise thing you said about, okay, now I recognize that I've got to make an adjustment. I've got to go about this differently. I wish I would have done that because I didn't. It took me a year away from the game and then coming back at 37 years old and, and trying to play again. I could have played, but I looked at my situation with the Washington Nationals and going, you know, I'm going to be a, a three or four day a week guy on a team that's going to lose a hundred games. And yeah. I thought at that point it wasn't worth it, but I made that decision and I had some closure and I was fine with it. You know, I knew that my, by far my best days were behind me, but I wish I would have had more of your mentality when I started to see that physical go. Cause for some reason I thought, no, this physical will be here. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to beat father time. Uh, yeah. Second baseman's usually <laughs> at 35, but for me, it's going to be 39, you know, and, and it wasn't, I was no different than the rest of them. I wish I would have had that mentality at that time of my career and maybe added, you know, I'm not going to say I would have added another four or five years, but maybe added another really quality year. If I would have taken uh, that perspective on it, you mentioned Jim Tomey, one of my favorites, a lot of guys favorites. I think that advice to you and, and that kind of, even at your you know, the, the stage you were at, that you were an ultimate veteran by that time, but you're sitting there with Jimmy and, and he's telling you, Hey, you know, he's even giving you advice. So we're, we're still learning things, no matter how much time we have, I'm still learning stuff today. You know, I've got a son that's playing in the minor leagues and I learned stuff with these young kids do how they prepare for games. I'm like, man, I wish I would have had a Theragun in 2004. <laughs> that would have, that would have probably my back would have felt a lot better back then, but you know, we can always yeah. learn and we're always learning this game. Um, 2014. And this is my favorite part about Paul Canerco. You get the statue 
of you while you're still playing. Nobody gets yeah. a statue while you're still playing. How is that? How cool is that? To me, there's nothing cooler. You can go to Comiskey anytime and, and sit next to your statue. How is that for you? Does it look like you? Were you happy with the artist? Yeah, no, I was, I was thrilled with it. I mean, it was definitely, uh, yeah, I, I felt like I, I was like, someone's like, what do you think about the statue? I'm like, what they should have gotten is like me stepping out of the box after a pitch, looking down at my bat, completely confused about what I'm doing and like totally second guessing everything about like, I'm going to step back in the box. That would have probably summed me up more than anything. Like I'm just mentally in my head at the plate. I would love to have seen a statue of that, but um, no, I, listen, I, during that year, I, again, th- that last year, I, I almost didn't come back. I was almost going to, you know, just retire at the end of 2013. And um, it was really a tough one to come back with because I knew I wasn't going to be in the same role. And I'm like, do I want to just end this, like, kind of like not trying to come back and play? It's a very tough, I, you know, you went through it, everybody, where do you want to just leave well enough alone? Because sometimes you try to come back for a year and you can almost make it more of a worse exit by looking bad out there and like, you know, kind of not just being such as then getting released in May or something like that. You don't want to bring the team to that point. You don't want to put the team in that position. There was a lot of that. Um, but I said, you know, find the final thing was, I, it was like, kind of like, listen, they're offering you a chance to come back here and put a uniform on. You have one chance to do this. And I kind of saw it as almost like a quasi coaching thing where it was actually a great year in terms of, you know, since I started playing baseball when I was like 10 years old, my job description was the same every single year through 2013, which was get in the middle lineup and drive some guys in. That's your job like every day. And like, I always just did. That was like my job description. I never, it never really changed much. It was always this, that. So that last year I was a bench player. You know, I played against lefties. I had a pinch hit. And I learned things um, that year, uh, especially if I ever want to get back into coaching and all that, because I never saw the game from that, that angle. You know what I mean? Like of having to watch a game and go, okay, this guy's starting to move around down the bullpen. I should start to move around to get ready to hit. What is this guy in the bench thinking? Like there was times where I felt so great that year, had a game, swung it really well. And then I'd sit the bench for three or four days. And the next game I played, it was as if I never touched a bat again. Uh, before. And I never had to experience that as a starting player my whole life. And so it gave me some awesome perspective on like what bench guys go through. I talked to a lot of guys in the bullpen. Like I really just got, I became a very much more knowledgeable baseball person about how it all works and what the coaches had to care about and like what they, because I had the time to do it and I, I wanted to have fun with it. And that was the year where I kind of did pick my head up and smell the roses a little bit and enjoy it a little bit. And, um, yeah, it was. It wound up being a great year in terms of my enjoyment of it all, and the, and the team, like I knew, like okay, I was there for a long time. They're gonna probably kind of give me a little send off, and you know that's cool, and they're gonna do that. But like what they did for me, whether it be the statue, whether it be the day, I mean they they went so far above and beyond. Um, like I, I just didn't think I was a player that got that. You know what I mean? Like I know I produced and I did well and all that, but I didn't know I. I you know, they made me feel more meaningful than I thought I was, you know, and that's, that's pretty cool. You retired after 14, 439 homers, 1412 ribbies, obviously a great career. 2015, the number 14 gets retired by the white white Sox. Another pretty awesome thing, pretty flattering thing to, to have done for you. Um, 
Teammate that taught you the most? Teammate that taught me the most? Um, I would say, uh, geez, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm going to go with Jim. You know, Jim came in in 2006, so I got to spend like five years with him. And I felt like from the actual baseball side of it, the human side of it, and again, the getting old in the game, you know, his famous quote to me was like, Paulie, one day you're going to walk in here and you're going to spend more time during the day getting ready to play than actually playing. <laughs> he was there at like noon to seven to get ready. And then he'd play the game for two hours. You know, it's like, so he, I learned a lot from him. Um, but a lot of coaches, I mean, there's so many to name, you know. I, I, I'll tell it really quick. Jim Tomey's, you know, he's, he's kind of, you know, from our generation, he's a lot of guys' favorite guy. And he's such a he, – he means so well. And, and this from anybody else would be an insult. But I know I'm talking to Jim Tomey. I'm in Philly, and uh, it's in the early 2000s. And Jimmy's playing for the – obviously for the Phillies. It's during a rain delay. And we're at Old Veterans Stadium, and some of the players are, you know, kind of out in the hallway. And, you know, Tomey comes over from the Philly side. He's, you know, he's yucking it up like Jimmy does, talking like he does. And uh, he looks at me and he goes, Booney, he goes, the other day I saw you hit your 200th homer. He goes, he goes, awesome, man. Congratulations. He goes, it reminded me of my 400. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're similar age. Jimmy might be, you know, a, a year or two ahead of me. But he goes, yeah, reminded me of my 400th. Any other person in the game would, would think of that as like, what a condescending uh, yeah, you yeah. Know, kind of backhand comment. But it's Jim Tomey. And if you know Jim Tomey, he didn't mean anything by it. He meant where it went, the trajectory. That's what he was talking about. It reminded yeah, him. Right. It just happened to be double what I just hit. You know, I thought, oh, I hit my 200th pretty good. I'm on a good roll here. <laughs> he just put me in my place. He goes, reminded me of my 400th. <laughs> I went, oh, that's great, Jimmy. But that that's he's one of my favorite guys that. Oh, you know, man, as a, as so an bad. opponent, just watching him through his career was was so cool. Um, <clears throat> all right, a good Aussie story you can tell on the air. Oh my gosh, um, good Aussie story on the. You air. know, um, you you probably get it all the time. It's like me; they ask me, "Give me a good lose story." I, I got fifty. You know, ten I can tell publicly. Um, you know, this one uh, you got you might even been on the field to say. I'm not even sure, but uh, in spring training. Um, we were playing the Mariners at, at Mariners there. This, I think it was Ichiro's first year. So what was that? 2001? Oh, no. No, no. It was had to be Ozzy was there. So I think it was 2004 or five. I want to say, put it this way, Felix Hernandez, I believe it was either the spring training. He was going into his rookie year or he maybe had pitched the year already, but he was like their big dog, big prospect guy. And he started against us. But anyways, the story is we had a guy start for us. And they guys on the Mariners had four. I, I was hitting third in the lineup that day because they got, I usually hit fourth or fifth or whatever, but whoever was traveling. So I, in the top of the first inning, I made the last out. By the time I got my second at bat, the starters for the Mariners had four at bats. Like they hit around so much and it had so many runs. So in the middle of like the first inning, like the bottom of the first inning, it was like, it was like 10 to nothing no outs, runners on, like another pitching change, 
and Ozzy came out and he had a bunch of sunblock and a bunch of whatever, and he brings it out of the mound and he's like applying it to everybody out there, like saying, "Hey, like you guys might be out here forever. This might never end." Like, like, but he was laughing and we were getting killed. I mean, it was, and you know, he was still, it was right around, I feel like it was right around 04, 05, somewhere in there. So you're kind of like, I can't believe a major league manager is like making light of like, like, this is like, we're getting, it was embarrassing for any time of the year, but like, he, he didn't even care. He was just like, whatever, man, like, we'll, we'll get through this. But he goes, here, I got some sunscreen. He's rubbing it on people on the, on the mile. Hey, take some of this. You should have a cup of water, bring it up. Cause we, we weren't coming in. So I just thought like. This guy, like, he just doesn't grip it tight, and he just has fun, and and, and he kind of just, like, the game was almost secondary. Like, what, just work hard. Whatever happens out there, good or bad, we're going to have a beer after this game either way. Like, who cares? <laughs> like, like, it was just his attitude of it all was great, you know, and I, I love right. playing for him. Fun. Yeah, it takes, takes your mind off things. Uh, what do you miss the most? Uh, the people. You know, not I don't miss the game necessarily. I miss, I miss like, the – and I know it's different now, and I have a feeling the players don't get the same experience we got because everything's a little bit different now in terms of how they run things. But, like, the clubhouse guys, the PR guys, the, the guys behind the scenes, the traveling secretary, um, all those things and the inside jokes and, and, and all those relationships is the thing. And you get to, I'm sure you get this question all the time when it says, you miss it? I say, I don't miss it. I miss some of the people, you know, and that's, that's, that's the thing that is for sure. The thing that sticks with me the most, I was just back in Chicago, got to go see some people. And it's like, you know, that was like the highlight of the trip for me, you know, Paul Canerco. Hey man, it's, it's been a lot of fun catching up with you. What a great career. Uh, well-deserved that from the statue to the number being retired, all very cool stuff. I appreciate you coming on, Paulie. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy. Dan? You rang. All right. Gentlemen, nice job on the podcast, Paulie. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, that was good. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question because I'm in Chicago. Oh, God yeah. damn. I got one. I got one. I got one. Les Grobstein was a friend of mine. I know you were a fan of his. And you actually went looking for some of his equipment. Were you able yep. to get that equipment? And can you tell Brett about that equipment? Well, it's funny because this is like six degrees of separation, right? Like, I'm sure Booney had Lee Ilya as a coach. And uh, yeah, love him. Right there in Seattle, right? So, obviously... He, what he's referring to is Lee Elia's tirade and rant in 83 with the Cubs, which is clearly the holy grail of all manager or head coach rants in the history of sports. <laughs> and the guy that uh, interviewed him had, and recorded that on his microphone just recently passed away. Um, but throughout my career in Chicago, you know, he'd be coming through the, the clubhouse all the time. And I'm like, listen, I want to buy that recorder. I want that on the wall in my house because that recorded, that, that's like the Zapruder film. You know what I mean? Like in JFK assassination, like that is the most valuable thing that, cause that to me, we would used to play that, the, you know, Lee Ilya's rant all the time, you know, like during the, when we were going bad or the fans were bad, we'd air that thing out in the clubhouse and guys just loved it. And one of our coaches knew Lee, uh, knew him well. So I actually got to meet Lee a couple of times when he came through and it was like, he was like, you know, it was like, for me, it was a big deal meeting him. Cause I just, I just loved everything about the guy. And like, just, but that whole situation with what happened, 
uh, was it's a Chicago, obviously legend. And it's, uh, you know, you know, it was just, it was a great thing. But anyways, the reporter passed away and I was like, I'm going to buy that recorder from you. But I think they wound up selling it to charity or something and they're going to donate the money or something like that. I'm not sure. Well, I know those guys that are involved with that. So I will find out and see if there's something that we can get over to you. (laughs) Well, I can just always go to YouTube and listen to it. That's enough for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was good to talk. Booney, appreciate it, man. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29 I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.